We're returning again to this series of messages in the epistle of Paul to the church at Colossae. The subject in this particular portion, and I'm referring to chapter 2, is the Christian and his creed. That which we believe and that which we live upon as the people of God. We have right here, in the words of Paul, a defense of the truth concerning Christ. And last time, you may remember, we sought to deal with the subject, the very profound subject of God in a body. There's a statement made there in chapter 2 verse 9, uh, which is stupendous, which is mysterious, but it's truth. In him, that's in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means all the fullness of deity dwelling in a human body. Christ eternally was and always will be God. But he took into union with his Godhood, our humanity apart from sin, And therefore, from then on, he will always ever be man. There's a man in the glory. There will be eternally a man in the glory. But he's the God-man, the mediator, Christ Jesus. And what Paul is establishing here, as he's already done in chapter 1, is that everything that God is, Christ is. Christ is God and nothing less. And that's why we worship him. You don't worship anything or anyone but the Lord thy God. That's what Jesus told Satan there on the time whenever he was being tempted. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus Christ is God and nothing less. Now the word fullness is used here. In him there dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. Bodily. The word fullness in the Greek is pleroma. It was a word that was often used by the Gnostics. It refers to completeness. And it represented to those Gnostics the sum of all the qualities of deity. Everything about God. The fullness of God. But in believing that, they taught also that Christ was only one of many stepping stones leading up to this fullness. And Paul actually refutes this idea by simply stating that all the divine fullness, all the divine pleroma, the completeness, dwells in Jesus. The very essence of the nature of God in all of its entirety dwells in Him. Now, not only can we say that the fullness of God is in Christ, and Paul does emphasize that truth speaking about the Lord that we must exalt emphasizing that the person of Christ is unique but flowing from that he's talking about the position of the Christian in Christ see the Bible teaches us that Christ is in us, Christ in you the hope of glory, it also teaches that we are in Christ this is the position of the Christian, and in particular, this is the topic from verse 10 down to verse 13. 
Colossians chapter 2, from verse 10, it simply says, And ye are complete in him. Remember that the previous verse is speaking of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now he says, ye are complete. And that's referring to the fullness of Christ that is in the believer. Back in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, in verse 16, it says this, John 1 verse 16, And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, or if you like, grace upon grace, of his fullness have all we received. The fullness of Christ. And Paul now tells us in Colossians that this fullness dwells in believers. That's what the word complete is referring to. Ye are complete in him. It refers to fullness. You could put it this way. Ye are or you have been made full in him. Now what does that tell us? It tells us that we don't need anything else but Christ. That's such an important truth. Nothing but nothing needs to be added to Christ. Now we know that false religions everywhere do exactly that. They add to Christ. For example, Roman Catholicism. It's Christ plus Mary. It's Christ plus works. It's Christ plus confessions. It's Christ plus masses. It's Christ plus candle grease. It's Christ plus all the way through. Christ is not enough. There always needs to be something added to Christ. But Roman Catholicism is not unique in its belief. Because every other false religion and every other cult is exactly the same. In that they, if they believe in Christ at all, will add to Christ. Adding regulations, adding stipulations, adding legalistic requirements in order to be saved. But Paul says here very clearly... That nothing needs to be added to Christ as far as the believer is concerned because ye are complete in Him. If you have the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything. The story is told of a famous nobleman who had a very profligate son, but he also had a very faithful servant. That profligate son, he was a total waster. His father was fed up with him. But the slave, the servant, was a very faithful slave. His name was Marcellus. And so when this man was making his will, he said that he was going to give everything that he had, all of his estate, to his faithful servant Marcellus. However, he wanted just to show a little bit of mercy 
to the profligate son. And so when he was having the will made up, he said to his son, I'm leaving everything that I have, not to you, but to Marcellus. But I'm going to allow you to have one thing, one thing you can choose that belongs to me. And the clever son said, I'll have Marcellus. He realized that if he had Marcellus, he would have everything. Because everything was left to Marcellus. So if I own Marcellus, I know that I own everything besides. Now that's just a human illustration, but that's how it is with the believer as far as Christ is concerned. When we have Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have everything. There's a hymn, a little chorus actually, we used to sing in our youth fellowship many, many Decades ago. And it simply goes like this. He is my everything. He is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. He gave his life for me. Made everything new. He is my everything. But how about you? Christ is our everything. We are complete in him. Now this Greek word from which complete comes, this fullness, is a word that was often used in the Greek language to speak of a ship that was fully rigged and equipped for a, for a voyage. So when that ship was fully loaded, everything that was needed for the journey already on board, it was now secured and it was ready for sea. It was referred to by this word, complete. And so we think about this in relation to our living in this life as we voyage forth, if you like, on the ocean of life. All we need is in Jesus. Everything. Everything that we need for life and for eternity. You see, in Christ there dwells all fullness. So then that fullness is ours by virtue of of our union with Christ. And this is our position. This is your position as a Christian. You are united to Christ. Let me turn you to a companion portion to this. Back in Ephesians, I've explained before that reading the book of Ephesians and reading Colossians together, you'll see how very similar they are. A lot of the material is repeated from Ephesians in Colossians. And here's one thing that Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2 of that book from verse 4. But God, who's rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. So there it is. He's made us alive together with Christ. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now what is that talking about? Well, first of all, God views the believer as in Christ. It says that there in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are in Christ. Especially do we find that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 13. But now, in Christ Jesus. 
ye who sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. When you come to Colossians chapter 2, there's somewhat of a repetition of this in verses 6 and 7. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And then verse 9, or sorry, verse 10. And ye are complete in Him. Notice the repetition of this little phrase, in Him. This is the believer's position. So that in our union with Christ, in our salvation, we are looked upon as having done the things that Christ has done. Christ died and we died in Him. Christ was buried, we were buried with Him. Christ was raised, we are raised with Him. Christ was exalted to heaven and we are exalted to heaven with Him. It mentions it there that we are with Him there in heavenly places. Look at verse 12 and 13 of Colossians 2. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together or made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Go down to chapter 3 then. And the first three verses. If, and really the sense of that is since. There's no question about it. It's not casting any doubt on it. If it says really since then you be risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Why? For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. That's your position in Christ. In a spiritual sense. Now obviously physically you're here. In your body you're here on the earth. But spiritually you are joined to Christ. You're identified with Christ. You are, you are united with Christ. You are one with Christ. And that's why Paul uses that terminology in 1 Corinthians 12 about the head and the body. He uses that again in Ephesians. The head and the body. Read the closing verses of chapter 1 of Ephesians. He's the head of the body, the church. We are the members of the body. There's a union that we enjoy with Christ. And by the way, there's a great assurance in that. How could you ever be in hell? How could you ever be in hell if you're part of the body of Christ? If he's the head and you're part of the body, surely there's an assurance of eternal life in that very thing. Now, the false teachers in Colossae taught that Christ was not sufficient. Something needed to be added to Christ. You had the Gnostics teaching about their philosophy. But you also had the Judaizers teaching their legalistic position about circumcision and various other rites. Christ is not enough. You must add things to Christ. But Paul taught the opposite. Basically what Paul is saying here is, Christ is all that we need. Colossians 2 verse 10, And ye are complete in him. 
You're made full in him. Tell me, what can be added to completeness? If something is complete, can it be improved upon? Can you make any sort of improvement upon perfection? Now there's nothing that we know this side of heaven that is absolutely perfect. But in a manner of speaking, sometimes we'll say about a certain thing, oh, that's perfect. Maybe a new dress that your wife bought, or maybe something she bought for you, oh, that's perfect. Well, everybody knows what you mean when you say that it's perfect. You're not saying that it's absolutely without fault, because if you examine it close enough, there's probably something that's not quite right of it, a little thread here, or or some dent in that uh, gift There's no such thing as perfection this side of heaven, except in spiritual things. We are perfect in Christ. We are filled full in Him. When you fill something to the brim, you can't get anything else in there. It's full. And therefore we can say of our Lord Jesus, He is all I need. Of course, some were teaching in that time. That in addition to trusting Christ as Savior, they needed something else. And you know, there are various manifestations of that same kind of teaching in the day in which we live. There are some who will tell you, well I know you're saved, but actually you need this other experience as well. To make you more of a complete Christian. When I was a young fellow working... When I left school, I had a a succession of different jobs. And one of the jobs that I had was in a drapery firm. I'll not go into all the details of that, but it basically involved selling clothing to wholesalers. We were the ones that provided uh, these uh, retail stores. We were the wholesaler, rather, and they were the retail stores. We would supply them with clothing. They would come in and they'd see these orders for certain shirts and they'd order, like, Two dozen or three dozen, whatever it was. But there's a fellow in there that used to work alongside me who was a professing Christian. And he was a charismatic. And he used to badger me all the time about the fact that I was never going to be a complete Christian unless I experienced what he had experienced, which was, quote unquote, the fullness of the Spirit in Speaking in tongues. So he told me that unless and until I had that experience, I would be an unfulfilled Christian. I would be an incomplete Christian. I would not have the joy, I would not have the whatever it was that he had. Well, I had my doubts about what he had. But I remember having this conversation with him. Tell him, first of all, that experience that you're talking about is false. I'm not going to tell you you never had the experience, but I'm going to tell you that the experience that you had doesn't square with the Word of God. It's not taught in Scripture. What you're talking about is not what happened in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, can you go down to the, the shore with, or to the docks with me and we'll meet some of these sailors coming off these foreign ships like Russians and Poles and Albanians, and you'll be able to talk to them and tell them the gospel in their own language, in their own dialect, 
without having learned it first. Will you be able to do that? Because if you can't, you haven't got the Pentecostal gift. Well, I didn't really like that. But there are people like this, and it's not just charismatism. There's various others who will teach it even in relation to the Holy Spirit. And you have to have this deeper life, and you have to have this higher experience, and you have to have this extra element to your Christian life, this magic bullet that makes you a better Christian than other people. And it's all in addition to trusting Christ as your Savior. Now in the case of these that Paul is counteracting here, these people were teaching Chapter 2, verse 16, and the verses following show us this. They were teaching that you had to have a certain diet, that you had to keep certain holy days, that you had to be involved in the worshipping of angels, and so on and so forth. Look at verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days. And he's referring there, by the way, not to the weekly Christian day of worship, but to ceremonial Sabbaths. Referring to the Old Testament feast days. And basically they taught that you had to observe those things in order to be saved. And one of their big things was the rite of circumcision. Now look at verse 11. Paul says, in whom, that's in Christ, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is spiritual language. But of course, the rite of circumcision, which was practiced among the Jews, was believed to be meritorious as far as salvation was concerned. This was the controversy, by the way, in Acts chapter 15. And without going into all that is taught in Acts chapter 15, you will find that in the first verse, the crux of the controversy is stated. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. There it is. And by the way, you study the book of Galatians, you'll see that that's the same teaching that Paul was counteracting there. You can't be saved unless you are physically circumcised. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 comes to mind here, the first two verses, where Paul says... Very clearly, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. He's counteracting these people who taught that circumcision was necessary for salvation. And what he's telling the Colossians is that true Christians have been circumcised, not physically, but spiritually. Remember how he talked about this in Romans chapter 2. This is a really important scripture. Romans chapter 2, 
And let's not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. From verse 25, Romans 2, verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth, it does you good, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So in other words, if you break God's law, it's just as if you hadn't been circumcised at all. It's of no value, spiritually. Then he says, Therefore, if the, circum- if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. And by the way, this language of spiritual circumcision, the circumcision of the heart, is borrowed from the Old Testament. You find it in the Old Testament just as much as in the New. What is Paul saying here? Physical circumcision. Such as is done on little boys, little babies. It was a manual operation, a minor surgery if you like. But spiritual circumcision is a work of the Holy Ghost. It's major surgery. The one is outward in the flesh. The other is inward of the heart, in the soul. And that's why Paul, when he gave his testimony to the Philippians, if I just read these words... Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3. He said, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. We're not depending upon an outward right to make us right with God. Now what was physical circumcision? It was the cutting away of excess skin. It was given as a sign of separation unto God. Cleanness. But the Israelites came to the place where they put more emphasis on the physical operation than they did on its spiritual significance. It was all outward to them. Something that was done in the flesh of their children and in some cases adults. Remember how that happened with Abraham and even with Moses. But if you turn to the Old Testament, you'll see a couple of the verses that I just referenced in general. Where I said that in the Old Testament there are places where it talks about the circumcision of the heart. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Pentateuch that we've been studying. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Look at this. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Your heart. And then you go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse number 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed To love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. 
You see how the emphasis is not on the physical. It's not on the outward. It's on the inward. In spiritual circumcision, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and repent of our sins, there is a casting off or a cutting off, if you like, a cutting away of our evil nature. What's called the body of the sins of the flesh. And this is a progressive thing in a Christian's experience. Sanctification is not a one-time shot. It involves a dying more and more unto sin and a living more and more unto righteousness. Now Paul uses the terminology, the circumcision of Christ. What does he mean by that? It's right there in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11 at the end of the verse. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? It means that circumcision which is yours because of your vital union with Christ. This is what has happened in your salvation. A form of circumcision has taken place. Cutting away at your heart. And the outworking of that is that we're to be pure in life. And we're to be separated unto God in our daily behavior. Ephesians 4 verse 22 reminds us of this. That ye put off concerning the former conversation or manner of life. The old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. It's like putting off old filthy clothes. The way it was before you were saved. You're to lay that aside. And walk in newness of life. Now Paul uses terminology here. That involves baptism. And again let me emphasize that the circumcision that's talked about is spiritual. And the baptism that's referred to is spiritual as well. Colossians 2 verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Now yes there is an outward manifestation of that in water baptism. But Paul is not referring here, strictly speaking, to water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. Just as he says in verse 11, there's the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, that's spiritual, so buried with him in baptism wherein you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. That's also spiritual. And it ties in with Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 from verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now I know that immersion, baptism by immersion, is often referred to as a picture of death, burial and resurrection. You're buried under the water, you're raised in newness of life. But let's remember that even if that is true, I personally believe that. 
But that doesn't save you. It doesn't make any change to you spiritually at all. So when Paul is talking here about being buried with him by baptism into death, in my view, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism of which water baptism is a picture and a type. This that he's talking about is the baptism of death. You know, the original language here is quite interesting. When he talks about the baptism into death in Romans 6, 4, it really refers to the fact that we are co-buried, we are co-raised, and we are made co-alive with Christ. We're united to Him. Let's again emphasize that the word baptism in the New Testament, baptizo, has both a literal and a figurative meaning. Baptizo, there's been a lot of argument about what it means, but there's no doubt that it does mean to dip or to wash with water, but it also has a figurative meaning. And so there's water baptism and there's spiritual baptism. And I'm here to tell you that no one but no one is ever saved by water baptism. I don't care whether it's a little bit of water or a lot of water. I don't care whether it's when you were an infant or when you were older, when you were in a profession. Baptism, as my late pastor used to say, will make you in itself wetter but no better. Sins aren't washed away by water. I had Campbellites at my door once in Scotland. You say, who are the Campbellites? Well, that's what I call them. They call themselves the Disciples of Christ or the Church of Christ. They believe that the blood doesn't hit you until you hit the water of baptism. They teach baptism or regeneration. And we put out a tract from our church there in Scotland, which had some verses on it. And I had put a little gospel message on there about how we are saved, and it's not by this, it's not by that, it's not by that. One of the points was, it's not by baptism that we're saved. But it's by the blood of Christ. And these two characters came to my door and they had my leaflet. And I thought, well, that's good. At least I've got the gospel. But they were showing, they said, we want to take issue with this. I said, what's your problem? They said, this reference here about baptism, you said baptism doesn't save. But the Bible says in the scripture that you're quoting that baptism does save. I said, oh really, does it? Could you show me that? Okay, so we turned to that scripture in Peter, where it's actually talking about Noah and the ark and so on. It's in the closing words of 1 Peter chapter 3. And it says in verse 20 about the spirits that are now in prison, those antediluvian people in the days of Noah, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And that's where they stopped. They said, look, look, isn't that what it says? 
Baptism doth also now save us. I said, wait a minute. That's not what it says. Read it again. It says the like figure. You know what a figure is? It's a type. It's a picture. So this is figurative. That's what the Lord is saying. The like figure, just like souls being saved by the water in Noah's day, the ark was held up by the water, the like figure or type or sign whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. But I said, don't stop there. Look at the rest of the verse. See the words in parenthesis? Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. You know what the filth of the flesh is? That's another way of talking about sin. We're to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, purge ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What's the filthiness of the flesh? It's sin. And it tells us here quite clearly, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism doesn't take away your sins. Baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. I have been saved by the washing of regeneration. I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And so I go through the waters of baptism as a picture of that, to show that. This is what happened to me in my salvation. I was buried with Christ, raised with Christ. My sins are gone. I am now living a new life. Well, they weren't at the door much longer that day, I can recall. They cleared off fairly quickly. These false teachers think that they know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're talking about. No one is saved by water baptism. It pictures and symbolizes what takes place in salvation. And that's how you and I must always hold this. There is a washing, there is a cleansing of our souls when we're saved by God's grace. When I came and asked the Lord to save me, He washed my sins away by the blood of Jesus on the basis of that death of His. And so when we think about baptism figuratively, it actually means not only uh, to be washed, but it also signifies to be identified with. When you're baptized into something, you're identified unto that. Let me give you an illustration of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And some people have tried to extrapolate from that uh, something about the mode of baptism. But actually, when you think about it, when the children of Israel went over the Red Sea, they never got wet. They didn't get wet. They crossed the Red Sea with Moses, but they didn't get a single drop of water on them. Why? Because they walked across on dry ground. Look at it. Go back into the Old Testament. They walked on dry ground. But figuratively, you see, they were identified with Moses as their only hope of leading them out of the bondage and slavery of Egypt. And so, from this point onwards, everything they were to receive from the Lord was to come to them through Moses. So they had to be identified with him. 
They had to be identified with Moses to benefit from the blessings of God. And that's what it means when it says they were baptized unto Moses. So bring this over to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 12. Buried with him. That's not Moses, but Christ. Buried with him in baptism. Were in also ye risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Every believer, you see, is identified with Christ in his dying, in his burial, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension to God's right hand. United to Christ in the baptism of his death, if we could put it that way, we are endowed with his resurrection life. The life of Christ is within us. That is why Paul was able to say, in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am crucified with Christ. United with Christ in the baptism of his death, the believer is endowed with Christ's resurrection life. That's why Paul could speak of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He lives in us. Now verse 13, as we close, Colossians 2 verse 13, says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. That's a lovely word. It means made alive. Having forgiven you all trespasses. We're made alive spiritually. And all of our sins are forgiven. Just let that sink into your mind and heart. Having forgiven you all trespasses. There are poor souls in this world. And they're always greatly concerned that they get to the priest and make a full confession. Every time they go for auricular confession, confession in the ear. They sit in that box across the way with a little piece of a veil of mesh in between and they try to tell him everything that they can think of since the last confession that they had thought or said or done so that he can absolve them so that he can say ego te absolvo I absolve thee so they can go in peace well relative peace because then they might think well there might have been something I didn't tell them and then the next time they come back they hope that they'll be able to tell them everything that they did or thought that was wrong. What an abomination. Listen, the Bible says of Christ that he has forgiven us all trespasses. On the basis of his saving work, we are forgiven. And that's why we are complete in him. We have complete forgiveness. The fullness of God's forgiveness. We have a perfect standing with him so that as we come before the Lord we appear in his sight as Christ appears in his sight because of what we are in ourselves but because of what we are in him alive in him my living head and clothed with his righteousness divine therefore bold I approach the eternal throne 
and claim the crown through Christ my own. There's a lovely hymn in our book. It is a favourite of our brother Mr. Cranston and uh, I think he gets his folk to sing this so often that they probably know it all off by heart. And it is that hymn, Complete in Thee. It's number 449 in our hymnal. And this is what it says. Complete in Thee, no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of Thine. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and I am now complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, no more shall sin Thy grace hath conquered. Reign within, Thy voice shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in Thee. Complete in Thee, each want supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Since Thou my portion, Lord, wilt be, I ask no more, complete in Thee. Dear Saviour, when before Thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are, among Thy chosen will I be, at Thy right hand, complete in Thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardon bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. And ye are complete in him, made full in Christ. What a blessed truth. May the Lord bless it to our hearts.